Good evening. It's Tuesday at 6 p.m., and that means it's time for GradCast, everybody's favorite radio and podcast show produced by the Society of Graduate Students here at the University of Western Ontario. I'm your host tonight. My name is Yemin Chen, and I'm joined with my co-host, Roger. Hi. Hi, Yemin. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing swell. I got rained on on my way here. Uh, but let's not dwell too much on that. We have a very interesting, very special guest for a very special episode for you tonight. Uh, I'm joined by my esteemed colleague, uh, Jennifer Opoku. <laughs> how are you doing, Jennifer? I'm very well, Yemen. How are you? Oh, excellent. So, Jennifer, tell us a little about yourself. You're at the uh, Faculty of Information and Media Studies. I am. Um, I just uh, finished my uh, first year of my PhD in the HIS program of FIMS. Okay. Um, so, uh, let's see. Well, so what is the HIS program? Could okay. you tell us that first? So, HIS stands for Health Information Science. So, the idea behind that department is to find people like me who have an interest in both health and information um, and in the intersection of that uh, to do research. Okay, cool. And I understand this is a sort of joint program between FIMS and, is it health sciences? Uh, health sciences, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what drew you to this program initially? So uh, before I got to Western, I was um, working as a health sciences librarian for about six years. And um, so as a health sciences librarian, I got to see the way that information can impact in both research and teaching. And so it was always very interesting to me. Um, to be involved in that, but then I started to think that I wanted to have more autonomy and more of a, you know, potential for a leadership position in academia. And so that's really what drew me to a program like HIS. When I found HIS, I was incredibly happy. Very interesting. Yeah. Uh, did you find uh, during your time as a librarian that uh, uh, looking up or uh, being interested in uh, the health sciences uh, helped you out with uh, your job, kept you interested, or drew you in a little bit further? Absolutely, and part of the reason that that was natural to me is that when I was a little kid, I thought I wanted to be a doctor, hmm. then I thought I wanted to be a nurse, then I thought I wanted to be an OT, and I kind of went through a bunch of different things until I eventually ended up at Health Sciences Librarianship. That's an interesting story, which I can tell another day. <laughs> um, but yes, I've always had an interest in health, so yeah. Very cool. cool. Can you tell us a little bit, uh, where does the I part fit into all this health science stuff, this information aspect? And, and like for you personally, what is your interest in the informational aspect? So, I mean, when you tell... <laughs> So when you talk to someone like me about information, I see it everywhere. I see it in the threads of the fabric of any discipline. Um, so for me specifically, information is, uh, is expressed in communication between patients and their uh, healthcare providers, between healthcare providers themselves or between patients themselves and say their family, their friends, their caregivers. So those are the areas of information or health information that I'm most interested in. But there are certainly a lot of others. Very interesting. Uh, would you like to speak a little bit to what your dissertation is about within uh, FIMS? Uh, okay, my dissertation will touch on health information seeking behavior. Um, 
since I'm at the end of my first year, I claim the right to have more time to refine <laughs> that answer. Sure, sure. <laughs> but certainly health information seeking behavior is a major motivation for me. Um, so I'm interested in the ways that people look for information and how that plays into their healthcare journey, whether they are sick or they are healthy. So information seeking behavior, um, can you give us an example of what that might be, what that might look like in the health context? Okay. So a really silly example, which um, won't seem too odd maybe to many of us, is that I wake up uh, one morning and I've got a major headache Mm -hmm. and my back is a little sore. And I'm a student and I'm kind of stressed out and I'm thinking, oh, good Lord, what's wrong with me? My back is never sore like this. And so I go to my computer and I go to Google and I check out, you know, sore back. And, and it's cancer. And it's cancer, <laughs> yes. <laughs> or it's um, the way that I slept on a mattress. Mm-hmm. Or it's activities that I got up to the night before, which could be anything. Um, And so what we're trying to get at between brain cancer and uh, um, activities is that um, it's helpful to be able to distill the information that you find online so that you can get a sense of when it comes to your specific condition, which information is actually going to be useful to you. And which is out there to sensationalize, to scare you, to try to sell you something. So this type of health information seeking behavior can occur online as you were just speaking to. And it also uh, pertains to how uh, physicians speak amongst themselves or between physicians and and patients. Would that be more of an offline sort of health information seeking? Yeah. So that offline between providers, um, I, I, yeah, certainly that happens because um, if you just think about colleagues, it's when you talk to your colleagues, um, whether it's at work or it's at school, it's a way of refining the knowledge that you have. So if you per- can present a case about a patient and maybe you talk about their information-seeking behavior, and maybe your other colleague does too, then there are things that you as uh, healthcare providers can learn. But that also works for the patient as well. So if I have these issues and say I'm living in a house with a bunch of other people my age, um, I could maybe ask them, so have you ever, ever had, after doing activity X, whatever it is, have you ever woken up with a really sore back? Because I never have before. Hmm. And, you know, I'm just wondering. And obviously that's a really funny example, but that's <laughs> those are the kinds of conversations that we have to get the information we need so we can make a decision what to do with our health. And that's the kind of area that I'm interested in looking and uh, finding questions to answer. Wow. Neat. Is there um, like a large body of work already in this area? Is there, has there been, you know, like decades of study or is this a relatively new um, sort of look at the field of health? It's somewhat new. Um, The earliest literature that I'm aware of comes from about 1980. Okay. Um, So So pre-internet. Pre-internet. More or less, yeah. Pre-internet and yet relatively new when we think about other forms of health communication, um, Mm -hmm. other things that have been studied in the healthcare field. So uh, there's still a lot of room for researchers and educators to come to consensus on what we mean by health information seeking behavior, Mm. Um, coming to consensus on how do we study it, um, and then thinking about where do we study it, um, what are the best ways to study it. 
I think I repeated myself a little bit. Yeah, there's room for <laughs> refinement. So, so on the note of how exactly you go about studying it, mm-hmm. uh, would you mind speaking a little bit to that? I'm, I'm curious if you run into any uh, confidentiality or consent issues uh, with, with accessing this type of uh, delicate information at times. Okay, yeah. Um, so when you're doing research, you're always going to have to think about confidentiality and uh, privacy um, when you're talking to people about the type of information they're looking for. And certainly, um, if they're looking at things to deal with sexual health, um, sexual practices, um, things that are a little more sensitive that we kind of drop our voices and whisper about Mm -hmm. in general. Um, If you're doing research in those areas, absolutely, you're going to want to think about things like confidentiality. Um, You're going to want to think about how you pose your question to people. Um, whether or not you're the best researcher to actually do that questioning, or um, is something about you as a researcher maybe going to get in the way between you and the people you're talking to. So for example, I'm a black female, I'm a somewhat large black female, and I'm in my early 40s. Mm -hmm. Um, In some populations, I will probably be able to talk very easily about, um, let's go with uh, STIs. All right. Okay. Sensitive topic. It, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Very sensitive topic. Uh, makes people very embarrassed. Um, mm-hmm. Some we can treat easily, some we can't. So there's a lot to distill there. For some people, I'll be able to talk to them very easily about how they look for information, what they've talked to their doctors about. Um, do they think they have enough information? Um, and for other people, um, it's going to be di- more difficult for them to want to talk to me as a researcher um, because... I just, I bring a vibe into the room, whether I mean to or not, that just kind of closes them off a little bit. So that's definitely something, as a good researcher, I would always want to think about. Very interesting. I'd imagine, uh, to a certain extent, possibly even with the uh, older literature, that a certain amount of bias comes into play uh, with uh, looking up how, or or looking into how exactly uh, the research is conducted. Um. Can you uh, can you try and clarify that a little for me? Well, well, on the uh, on the topic of you uh, potentially uh, offsetting an individual or or an individual not uh, being comfortable speaking to you on a certain topic, uh, there may be a certain amount of bias in how somebody goes about accessing the information and uh, the keywords they use in in their searches. And s- okay, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, for sure. Are these considerations um, that have been sort of highlighted in the past in this sort of research or I mean I get the feeling that in perhaps past decades in a lot of this sort of interview type perhaps um, you know human social research a lot of uh, potential hidden biases in terms of the types of people who respond to these studies the type of people conducting these studies they have gone maybe unexamined that might be what Roger was sort of getting at. Is that something that you've seen in your literature searches? Um, Yes and no. Okay. It's something that I sense. It's not necessarily something I've seen. Right. And I know that that sounds very wishy-washy, so now I should (laughs) probably talk about the fact that um, I'm very interested in qualitative research in the health sciences. Okay. So when it comes to quantitative research, which many people are more easily familiar with, research that comes from a more post-positivist place, um, so that's research where you measure things, you count right. numbers, you, you report you statistics. Run statistics yeah. Right, okay. Multiple regressions, all of that sort of thing, right? 
So that's, is, is that the sort of normal standard way of doing things in the past? That's the, um, I would say that, that that is the majority of research that you see in the health sciences, okay. which makes a lot of sense because um, very often you'll see papers that are trying to decide if, if you can use aspirin effectively to treat headaches in, um, in various populations mm -hmm. or you know, if you can use a certain medication effectively um, by itself or with another one uh, for treatment. And so um, quantitative methodologies make a lot of sense because you really want to be able to um, come to some level of specificity mm -hmm. um, as to whether or not this is a good treatment or a good therapy or what have you. Right. And so you're saying you're taking a different approach, more qualitative. Right. So yeah. I'm I'm um, part of this stream of uh, up-and-coming researchers who think that um, it's helpful, in addition to any regressions or statistics or modeling that we do, to talk to people, to observe people, to take a look at their perspectives on various um, health issues. So for me, that might be like I um, sort of indicated before, talking to people about their health information seeking behaviors. It might be um, observing people. Um, that one's a little harder to think through, if, if I'm being totally honest, but mm -hmm. observing people um, as they try to in um, interact with information. So possibly in a public library, um, if you know if people are asking for health information um, but essentially what I'm trying to do is observe people in their natural state and um, use a methodology more in line with the idea that there may not be one reality but there might be multiple realities and um, and uh, that's a really great face human but anyway <laughs> that every person who I talk to has their own perspective and so there are types there are some methodologies that can bring that out very beautifully and give you more of a picture of what's happening in any healthcare situation okay so multiple realities multiple opening realities. up all <laughs> sorts of possibilities <laughs> oh, that, that, that's pretty cool um, I was wondering though can you give us an idea of what what sorts of data, what type of information can you learn uh, using more qualitative um, methods that you can't get at, say, with the quantitative stuff, with looking at numbers and measurements and counting stuff? So the example I'm thinking of most quickly mm -hmm. um, comes from a workshop that I did uh, a few months ago. So we were talking about um, um, phenomenology um, mm -hmm. used as a research method. And um, those who are uh, well-versed in philosophy, um, please hear me when I say that I'm talking about it used as a research method, um, because that's an important distinction. So one might consider doing a phenomenology on a, um, a child, an infant, who's been born, who is very ill and so is in the, uh, the, IC, uh, the NICU. Um, so they're hooked up to various monitors to check on their vitals, to check on breathing, to check on whatever else they need to check on. And so the parents are learning to interact with the child for the first little while of their life with this machine um, or various machines and various healthcare providers coming in. So one might look at what is the lived experience of a parent whose child is in this situation. One could also find it interesting to look at what is the lived experience of a parent whose child has come home, is no longer in the situation, um, and now it's really just them and the child. 
So um, that would be one example. And so that would um, be brought up through um, interviews, through stories, possibly even poems um, that sort of deal with whatever you think this lived experience is supposed to be. Um, it's hard. That's, that's uh, off the top of my head, that's probably the best I can do to explain it. But. Right. So in a way, are you looking at um, how people feel about um, basically their health care and their health care experiences? Yeah. Okay. That, that would and, be one. And that's something that, that perhaps is notoriously difficult to actually measure. I'd, I would say almost impossible to measure. Okay. <laughs> it seems like you're unraveling uh, several different layers here that, it, like Eamon was, was saying, are, aren't possible to get at through the quantitative measurement that's classical to the field. Which is what makes the qualitative piece so interesting and which is what creates an interesting tension between the two, which is also very important so that we can help each other do good research. Are there certain themes that you're particularly interested in, in looking at uh, within your uh, field of study? Um, so I find that I'm becoming more interested in looking at um, assumptions that we make um, around how people look for health information, what people can do with health information. Um, I, in my previous work, uh, or previous job I worked with, really wonderful healthcare providers who um, would talk about various patients and they were always quite respectful and yet there was always some level of assumption that they made about how these patients would interact in the healthcare system based on um, you know their background, their education, their age, where they lived in the city. And uh, some of the assumptions I think were reasonable and some could be problematic. And so I'm at the place where I'm very interested in trying to look at some of these assumptions that might get in the way of um, good communication between a patient and their provider. Very interesting. Uh, so you were speaking a little bit uh, in your previous job. I understand you were a librarian, not uh, here within Canada, uh, but back in Virginia. Right. That's right. Um, how long were you uh, in uh, in the library for? And uh, yeah. How so, did you end up here? So I was in that library for about six years. I was in Virginia for 14. Um, so while I was in Virginia, I did my library school training. I did my um, first foray into working in the health sciences and then actually got this professional position. Um, yeah, so I was there for um, a good chunk of my life. And what made my decision, I've sort of referred to earlier, was just wanting more, um, more of an option, more chance for autonomy in terms of w the things that I would like to research, the people that I would like to work with. Um, so that was what um, prompted my decision. And when I looked, I saw the program at Western and decided this would be a great place to apply. So I did. Mm -hmm. Well, we're uh, very happy to have you here with us, uh, not just on the radio. <laughs> um, but speaking of, you know, cross-border, south-of-the-border things and issues, um, you are a dual citizen um, with both American and Canadian citizenship. Correct. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And you you said you were born in Fort McMurray yep. in Alberta. Yep. And you spent a significant portion of your adult life in the United States. Yes. Um, these must be interesting times 
for you, they're, I imagine. Yeah, they're very interesting times for me. So um, have the events of, say, the last year, or maybe more specifically, uh, the last couple weeks, uh, especially in Virginia, um, have any of these current events uh, influenced or affected um, you as a graduate student here in Canada? Yeah. Um, excuse me. <laughs> One of the uh, reasons I chose to apply to Western was that mm -hmm. I was very interested in coming back to Canada after having been in the States for so long. Having been in the States for so long, there are areas of the U.S. that um, I would potentially be interested in moving to after I get my Ph.D. All right. The events of the last couple of weeks have made me aware and almost hyper-aware that um, we still struggle with issues of how to treat each other, specifically around race and how that's represented in history. Um, in the U.S., it seems a little more obvious than it does in Canada, and yet um, the last few weeks have taught me that both countries, um, we struggle with how to treat each other well. And how that affects me as a graduate student is what sort of environment would I like to go to uh, and to work in knowing full well that there's always the possibility for tension, knowing full well that um, on site someone may look at me and decide that I am not someone to be treated well. That's a reality I've lived with all my life and uh, I'm going to have to continue to live with. It doesn't matter how much education I have. So um, those are things that are just kind of coming more to the forefront these days. So in terms of these long-term plans, you, you mentioned that you had initially thought that um, you might return to the United States after completing your degree. Um, has that changed at all? Or have you perhaps started to consider things a bit differently? Well, I, um, I'm mostly, so my heart um, has always been in Canada. And, okay. Um, it would be, it would make me really happy if I could stay in Canada. Um, you know, I, I hope that I'll start my career in academia, so that means I'm going to have to be a little more mobile, so mm -hmm. I need to keep the U.S., I feel that I need to keep the U.S. as an option. But there are definitely areas in the U.S. where I would be less comfortable going to at this point in time. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, I could see myself in some areas in the Midwest, some areas in the Pacific Northwest. Um, again, I'm aware that tensions are not necessarily any less in those areas, but they are expressed differently in ways that I'm a little more comfortable engaging with. Areas like the um, South would take a little more convincing for me to consider going to. And that is um, sort of even after the fact that you had spent many years working in Virginia. Yeah, which is very strange because I have people that um, I would love to work with again. Mm -hmm. um, thank God for the internet and telephones. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would no longer be comfortable living in 
in those areas anymore. So we'd have to find other ways to collaborate. Right. And so you you said that recent events um, this August have made you sort of, you said hyper aware of some of the issues um, that we, you know, in Canada and the United States are facing as a sort of, as a society. Um, Is this something that you've been thinking about sort of for a long time or sort of beneath the surface or has, you know, um, the rallies down in Charlottesville, for example, um, sort of opened your eyes in a way that, um, or maybe many of our eyes in a way that we had not anticipated before recent events, I guess. Yeah, recent events. Well, um, I, I have a bit of a joke uh, with a couple of my friends that um, I needed a break from some of the reading I was doing this year during coursework. So I started reading Bell Hooks, specifically Ain't I a Woman? Mm-hmm. Anyone who's ever read that book um, and remembered that I said that I was a black female should be chuckling a little under their breath because that was probably one of the most difficult books I could have chosen to read. So since starting that book, um, when did I start that? Probably in January. Um, Things have been rumbling around in my head. Um, I'm looking at situations and people a little differently. And I was visiting in Virginia um, and on my way back to Canada just as um, Charlottesville started heating up. And so that was a particularly difficult um, leaving for me because I have friends that are down there and it's my country as well. And I just have to remember that just because we're in 2017 doesn't mean that we know any better how to deal with racial tension. So, yeah. Very very eloquently put. Thank you. Uh, Jennifer, I'd like to thank you very much. You've given us a a fantastic summary of uh, your research and about the uh, general nature of the health information uh, sciences and in health information seeking behavior, uh, about the nature of qualitative research and about the uh, turbulent nature of uh, these troubled times that we're in currently. Uh, Thank you very much once again. Thank you both. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on and sharing your personal experiences here. Uh, This has been GradCast. We are a production of the Society of Graduate Students on CHRW. I'm Eamon, and I'm your host today. I was joined with Roger, and we were talking to Jennifer Opoku. If you would like to follow our podcast, you can find us online at gradcast.ca or drop us a line at gradcastradio at gmail.com if you'd like to join the committee or come on the radio yourself to talk about your research. Thanks very much. We'll see you next week. Have a good one.